Good morning, guys. Thank you. Merry Christmas to all of you. So glad that you're here, those who are here in person and those who have joined us online. Really glad that you have joined us today. I'm excited because uh, we're going to start a new uh, four-part Christmas series titled The Gift. And of course, the gift that I am referring to is none other than Christ himself. But I need to warn you that this is not going to be a typical Christmas series. We're not just going to dwell on the details of Christ's birth and the many individuals who were involved in that first Christmas. This is going to be a grittier series where we are going to look deep inside of, at our humanity and how desperately it is that we need a savior. In this series, we're going to look at why Christ came. And today we're gonna to start by identifying the purpose of the gift. Next week, we will talk about the promise of the gift. In week three, we will look at the announcement of the gift. And on Christmas Eve morning, we are going to look at the plan of the gift. But whether it's the, the, the purpose, the promise, the, the announcement, or the plan of this wonderful gift that we've been given from God, we're gonna lay out exactly why it is that Jesus had to come to redeem us from our sin, and yes, to even save us from ourselves. And this is a series that I believe will be perfect for your family and friends who don't know Jesus, who might be more willing to come into the church doors during Christmas time. You can invite them to come and to learn more than maybe what they typically hear about Christmas at Christmas time in the church and leave realizing more than ever their need for Jesus. My hope is that through this series and us focusing on why it is that Christ came, they will see what they're missing and they will be challenged and encouraged to consider following Jesus because he is the answer to everything. Amen. And my hope and my prayer for those of us who already know Jesus is simple. That through this series, you too will better understand your need for a savior and to recognize your continual ongoing need of Jesus in your life in all things and in all areas. So I wanna preface uh, this series by making this statement. It never works when you start in the middle of a story. You can't crack open a book and begin reading in the middle and make any sense of what's happening. There will be conversations that make absolutely no sense to you. There'll be things people are choosing to do that will completely confuse you. You can't walk into the middle of a movie and make any sense out of it either. I know I've tried and I know some of you've tried and it makes absolutely no sense. In the same way, you can't jump in the, in the, the middle of a conversation and actually say something appropriate without first knowing where that conversation has started and where it's already been. It's like I said, you just can't begin in the middle of a story. And yet that's often what we do here in the church at Christmas time. What I mean is if you begin the Christmas season with that baby in the manger in Bethlehem, you're not starting at the beginning of the story. You're actually starting in the middle of the story and there are going to be things that don't make sense to you. I mean, why the songs of celebration from the angels? Why the fearful anticipation 
of the shepherds? Why the inquisitive journey of those, those three kings from the Orient? And why all the political panic of King Herod? Why? You really have to begin at the root of a story to fully understand it. And that's what I intend to do with you over the next several Sundays in this Advent series. And I wanna say something that maybe you've never thought of before, but I'd like you to consider. And here it is. This famous story, this historical and supernatural event of the Christ child being born in a manger in Bethlehem is actually rooted in grief. Did you know that? And it is the grief that comes from the heart of God. And if you don't, and if you can't understand this grief in God's heart, then I fear that you will never be able to understand the glory of the story of this baby born in a manger. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the first book in the Bible, Genesis. We'll be reading in chapter 6. Verses five through eight. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew pocket in front of you, or you can follow along. The scriptures will be up on the screen behind me. Genesis chapter six, verses five through eight. I'll be reading from the New King James Version this morning. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And verse eight says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I wanna focus on the words in verse six, and the Lord was sorry that he made man on earth and he was grieved in his heart. I want you to consider for a moment the deeply personal nature found in these words. What is it that would bring such grief to the heart of God? Those words note something very, very personal, some kind of a, of a personal offense, some kind of a personal affront, some kind of a personal betrayal. So what offense, what betrayal, what personal thing could be so significant that it would literally bring tears into the heart of God? Well, look again at the words of verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, could you get any more graphic, any more specific, any more all-inclusive words than these? God saw that the wickedness of man, you and I, is great. And all over the inhabited earth, there were continually doing evil in the sight of God. Every intention of thought in the heart of people was only evil. Continually, it says, could there be a more sad passage in all the Bible? But I want you to think about something. You cannot really understand 
the horror of these words and you can't understand the tragedy of these words and you won't understand this sad thing that would bring such grief into the heart of God if you don't first understand these words relationally. Because this passage is describing something that is deeply personal. And if you don't understand the deeply personal, the deep relational aspect of what is being described here, then again, you don't really understand the glory of that baby sent to Bethlehem. Well, pastor, I'm not sure I understand what you're getting at. Well, then let me take you on a bit of a journey. We human beings, you and I, we were created and we were hardwired to love God. That love of God, that that Godward way of living, that God consciousness, all of it was intended to be the thing that would shape every thought and every motive. It would shape every choice, every decision, every word, and every deed or action. And fundamentally, so much so that you could ask me in any situation why it is that I'm doing what I'm doing, and I could give you the answer because of God. I would recognize his existence. I I would recognize his authority. I would recognize his grandeur and, and his holiness. And as an act of deep personal love, I would choose to serve him with all of my time, and with all of my heart, and with all of my energy. That's what we were created to do, ladies and gentlemen. We were made for God, and we were made to love God. This is why what all human beings were created to do. This is the calling of all humanity to love God. It is as simple as that. All of us here today are lovers. And I know that sounds funny, but you were hardwired to love. Everything you will ever do in your life and wherever you do it is always driven and motivated by love. And that love was intended to motivate us. Uh, It was a a Godward love. That's how we were meant to live. And a great majority of people in this room carry the title of Christian. Those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and obedient to his word. But it's important to understand that obedience to God is not just some kind of technical submission to a set of abstract rules. That is not what obedience is. Obedience is rooted in the love of God. And because I love the lawgiver, therefore I find joy in staying inside of his boundaries. I find joy in what it is that he calls me to do. I find joy in serving him. I find joy in pointing to his glory because I love him. And you know what? That is true in any relationship. When you love somebody, you want to serve them. You have a desire to please them, and you will find joy in their joy. That's how every human being who has ever given life and breath was meant to live. That was the plan. But now it is very clear in Genesis 
chapter six, verse five, that something has happened. There must be some other kind of love that has claimed the heart of human beings because no longer do they delight in serving God. No longer do they find joy in his joy. No longer do they want to stay inside of his boundaries. Instead, they willingly and purposefully and continually do what is evil in his eyes. What would bring distress to God's heart like this and how could it be any worse than how this scripture describes it? I want you to think for a moment of Jesus' summary of the law. When he was asked what is the greatest commandment, he summarized the law in Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38 by saying this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's the greatest command? What's the command of all commands? The root command is to love God. And that love initiates all other commands. So if love for God is the ultimate command, ladies and gentlemen, then the greatest evil of evils is a failure to love God. Because when we don't love God, I will not stay within his boundaries and I will no longer live for his glory. You've gotta understand something very important. When human beings no longer love God as they should, it doesn't mean that they don't love because you always love. Remember I told you that you were hardwired to love. So if you're not loving God, then you will give that love to somebody or something else. No one in this room is loveless. Either God owns your love at the deepest, most profound level, or something else does. And so when you're, you're reading here about this evil, about this wickedness that brought grief into the heart of God, you should ask this question, what love is so seductive what love is so powerful and so deceptive that it has the possibility in sin to replace the love that, that I was meant to have for God? In 2 Corinthians 5.15, the Apostle Paul is making a brief comment on the reason of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And let's make sure we all understand this word incarnation as well as the term, the incarnation of Christ, because it's used a lot this time of the year at Christmas time. Incarnation is a central doctrine of the Christian faith, which affirms that God took on human form in the body of Christ. In other words, God was incarnated in human flesh. And this doctrine means that because God was incarnated in Christ Jesus, then Christ was born both fully human and fully God at the same time. So again, let me go back to 2 Corinthians 5.15. The Apostle Paul makes clear or makes a very brief statement on the, the reason for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And he says that when Jesus came, he died for all, that all who lived 
shall no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. This baby was born so that those who live would no longer live for themselves. So the thing that always replaces love for God, the thing that always leads us to this endless catalog of evil, ladies and gentlemen, is love of self. It's the love I have for me. I love David Blythe. He's the greatest thing since sliced bread. He deserves everything good in his life because I love David Blythe. (laughs) Somehow, we all insert ourselves into the center of our world. Somehow, some way, we all ascend to our throne and we no longer delight in serving God. We are obsessed with our will. We are obsessed with with our way. And we wanna be sovereign over our own lives. We want to set up our own set of guidelines and rules to live by. We are obsessed with our own comfort. We are obsessed with our own personal pleasure. We are obsessed with our own personal happiness. And when you live for yourself, you will step over God's boundaries again and again and again and again. Why? Because your heart isn't motivated by love for God. It doesn't take a whole lot. I mean, just just look around you. You'll see massive amounts of evidence in this dominating, controlling, enslaving, life-shaping thing called self-love. Just take marriage as an example. Marriage can be hard. Anyone who is married understands this. Why can marriage be hard? Because of selfishness and because of self-love. People get married because they love someone, right? They have a wonderful plan for their life together. It's a beautiful idea, isn't it? So then why is it so hard to serve each other? Why is it so hard to not let a discussion go and become an argument? Why is it so hard to not say, I told you so, with that pointy finger? And conversely, why is it so easy to feed myself while not really being concerned about feeding the other? Because deep inside there is this overwhelming desire to have. Deep inside there is this struggle about giving my best to someone other than myself. And this thing is called love of self. And it so quickly displaces our love for God. What is it that makes parenting so hard? It's because you've given birth to a bunch of self-sovereigns. It's true. They want to make up their own law. They want to set up their own set of rules. I mean, has a child ever said to you, Mom, Dad... If you had just given me more rules, if you could just exercise more authority in my life, I would have felt so secure. (laughs) Absolutely not. 
Pastor named Paul David Tripp tells a story I'd like to share with you that is so fitting to this message. He said, we were heading out on a family road trip. If you want to experience the depravity of the selfishness of sin, go on a long family road trip. You'll not only experience your children's, but your own. Our son Ethan had some polyps in his nose, and often he would wheeze when he breathed, and it was a bit distracting. So he's sitting in the back seat next to his sister, and somewhere along the trip, she says, Dad, Ethan is bothering me. I said, what is he doing? She answered, he's breathing. (laughs) I said, what do you want me to do? She told me, tell him to stop. He said, your brother is respirating, and if he could stop, that your life would be made so much better, you've got to be kidding me. (laughs) Now, that's a funny story because of the unreasonable nature of both the complaint and the request made of 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 this father. But I want you to think about this for just a moment. Every request like this even though we laugh at it, is rooted in self-love. But let me just bump up the stakes here. Every act of murder and violence is rooted in self-love. Every moment of greed is rooted in self-love. Every bit of gossip is rooted in self-love. Every bit of disobedience to parents is rooted in self-love. Every act of adultery and unfaithfulness to a spouse is rooted in self-love. The evil of this world has happened because we no longer love God like we should. And it's a tragedy because the world was designed to have at its very center the love of God. And when that love is not there, things will not work like they were designed to work. Things will explode into evil and they will explode into chaos and we experience this every single day. Just watch the news, it's everywhere and how sad it really is. Listen, you can clearly see here how much God loves the creatures he made by the fact that his heart is broken. Because if you love someone and they turn their back on you and betray that love and they set their love on on, on someone else, if your heart isn't broken, then there's no love in you. So God proves himself not just to be sovereign and not just to be creator and not just to be almighty, but to be a God of marvelous love because he weeps at this betrayal. Because human life was meant in its fundamental form to be a beautiful love relationship between God and man. So how sad it is when we take the time to read this passage. In fact, you should let your mind's eye actually see the tears in the eyes of God. And you should let the imagination of your ears hear weeping from the voice of God. God is grieved here, ladies and gentlemen, because not only has that love been taken from him, but that love has been stolen for us. And it's the ultimate of human betrayals. Now, if you are able 
to get this far in this passage, then you have to be asking, what in the world is God gonna do? How will God respond to this ultimate betrayal? Because you see, God understands something. He understands that every sin is vertical. And when I say vertical, I'm talking about our relationship with God because every sin we commit is a sin against God. We tend to look at our sin in purely a a horizontal direction. I sin against you. I'm talking, when I talk about horizontal relationships, I'm talking about earthly relationships and how we sin against people. Sometimes we sin against people who we love. But let me just say something here this morning. You have never, ever sinned a purely horizontal sin in your life. Because every sin is forgetting God. Every sin is refusing to love God. Every sin is a rejection of God's presence, of God's glory, and of God's authority in your life. So I'll say it again. Every sin is a vertical sin. That's why David, when he confessed his sin of murder and adultery, says these words in Psalm 51.4, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. What David is saying is my failure wasn't first that I didn't love Bathsheba and Uriah in the way that I should. My failure, God, was that I didn't love you as I should have. And when I didn't love you as I should, I was able to do these horrendous things. This, Lord, is against you. So how would you respond in, such, in, in, in face of such a betrayal? Well, look at verse seven again. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse seven sounds like a sad and a horrible end to the story. Don't you hate it when you watch one of those movies and you're hoping for a great ending, but it ends in a disaster and you think, I spent 90 minutes on my life for this? Well, verse seven sounds just like that. That God, not in an act of ugly vengeance, but God in holy righteous justice says, enough. I made you. I, I own you. I provided you with every good thing you could ever want, a life of beauty that you could never have created on your own. And this is what I get in return? You completely turn your back on me? Well, then I'll wipe the earth clean of you. And God has every right to do that if he wants to. It's not unrighteous anger. It's holy and righteous justice that sends the waters of the great flood to wipe the earth clean. And it would seem like that was the end of the story. And you might say, no, no, is this love story really going to end this way? Well, don't worry. It's not. Because Genesis, in chapter six, there is a verse eight, and it says this, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. By an act of sovereign grace, God placed his favor on Noah and his family. You know the story? 
He was chosen by God to survive the waters of the great flood with animals that he put on an ark that Noah built per God's instructions. And it's very important for me to note here what happens after the waters of the flood recede and the earth dries up. God makes a covenant with Noah. He says, Noah, I'm going to bless you. And I'm not only going to bless you, but I'm going to bless your descendants. And if you read through the genealogy that follows, you're going to read a lot of names that are hard to pronounce that you've never, ever heard before. But you will come to one very familiar name, and that name is Abraham. Because Abraham was one of those descendants, and God made a covenant with Abraham. And he said to Abraham, not only will your descendants be blessed, but through your seed, the nations of the world will also be blessed. The apostle Paul alerts us to the fact that the seed of Abraham, ladies and gentlemen, is none other than Christ Jesus. You see, the only way that this horrible brokenness of a relationship could be rectified is for God to send his son. I want you to look back at Genesis 6 again. And I want to explain to you why it says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Listen to what it says. And every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Listen, our big problem is not first a behavioral problem. If all our problem was is that we occasionally behaved in the wrong ways, you could probably reform yourself and you could probably get better. Your problem and my problem, however, goes much deeper than that. Your problem and my problem is a heart problem. In the Bible, the heart is the control center. It is the directional system of the mind and the emotions of the human being. Your heart is your very core of who you are. And therefore, whatever controls my heart will then control my words and will then control my actions. The one thing I am not able to do or you are able to do is to escape our heart. And so I need to be rescued. Someone needs to do for me what I cannot do for myself. If I'm ever going to be one of those people who loves God in the way that I'm supposed to love God, I need help and I need rescue. And so God sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be exposed to all the harsh realities of life, living life in this fallen world, and to live in the midst of all of this brokenness and all of this temptation. His was an utterly perfect life. And the, the, the life that flowed out of his love for God, his love for the Father, he said, I came to do your will, Father. And in every thought, and in every desire, and in every word, and in every action, he perfectly obeyed. He did what we are unable to do. He died a satisfactory death. It's a hope that would finally defeat love of self and it would be replaced by love for God so that someday we would stand before him and every cell of our heart would fully love him and so that every word and, and every thought and every action would be pleasing in his sight. That is the hope of redemption. And now the work of the Messiah is both an event of him coming and a process. 
By his work on the cross, the power of sin has been broken. He made a public spectacle of the enemy, triumphing over him on the cross so that you and I need not live under the slavery, the slavery of sin any longer. But here's the truth. The presence of sin still remains, but it is being progressively eradicated by his sanctifying grace. Listen, there are times when your thoughts and my thoughts are shaped by love of God, but not always. There are times when the things we desire flow out of love for God, but not always. There are times when the contents of the words that you and I speak are formed by love of God, but not always. There are times when you act in ways that you wouldn't act if you hadn't first had a love for God, but not always. Every one of us this week demonstrated clear evidence that the war of love still goes on in our hearts. Am I right? And that war brought evil and chaos into this place that we live Maybe that struggle even manifested itself this morning while you were getting ready to come to this service to worship the God that you love. When suddenly an outbreak of self-love came in the form of an argument and it created anger and it created division and it created conflict. How ironic. And so everyone in this room still needs to embrace sad reality of this betrayal, but also the glorious celebration of the hope that is ours represented by that baby who came and was born in that manger. The one who has come on a mission of of, of rescue, a mission of deliverance. And because he came, there will come a day where there'll be a company of people who with every cell of their being will be controlled by love of God. And they will live inside of God's boundaries and they will live for God's glory forever and ever and ever. Amen? Amen. That is the day that we live for. That is the day that we look forward to. That's the promise that we hold on to. And that day there will be no more sin, no more sickness, no more disease, no more heartache, and nothing else will be capable of stealing our love that was meant for God. And we will be in his presence and we will be forever grateful that Jesus came on that first Christmas to save us from our sin and yes, to save us from ourselves. Scott, will you come forward? Help me to close this down. By his work on the cross, the power of sin has been broken. He's made a public spectacle of our enemy triumphing over him by the cross. You know, when we see this moment of judgment that came from the great flood, it wasn't the end of the story. Because this God of glory and power and sovereignty is a God of glorious grace. And he sent the son of his love 
by grace to return us to our capacity to love him in the way that we were designed to love him. And there are so many of us who have received his forgiveness and his unending grace. So this story is very familiar to many of you in this place. You've placed your trust in Jesus. But you might say this morning, Pastor David, you're right. I still fight this battle. I still need the resources of God's grace that can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it is a battle. It's a battle of the flesh. It's about that self-love. It's what we battle with. And when you find your actions aren't driven by love of God, then you can clearly start to see that your flesh is who's winning the battle. So we need to, first of all, be conscious of this battle that we fight, but then put ourselves in a position to win. How do we do that? We do that by continually crying out to God, staying in his written word, and sometimes we just need to seriously reconnect with God. You cannot live on your past experiences with the Lord. You need new experiences with God. Quit talking about what happened 40 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Talk about what God's doing in your life today. Maybe you're here this morning, and for the first time, you have the insight to realize, I don't think I've ever lived for anybody else other than me. Well, if that's the conclusion that, that you've come to, I would plead with you to then confess that to our Lord and Savior this morning, Jesus. Seek his forgiveness, seek his grace, receive his salvation. To be saved, the Bible says you must believe and you must confess. If you're not a believer in Christ, you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came here that he walked and he talked among us. He showed us the love of the Father. He performed great miracles. He died a horrendous death on the cross and the blood that he shed on that cross was the cleansing agent to wash away your and my sin. You need to confess that in prayer. The belief part is believing it, that Jesus is the only way to eternity in the presence of God. And the confession part is just to pray these things in prayer to him. When you do, you will receive salvation. And so this morning, I want to open this altar to anybody for any purpose or any reason. Maybe like me, you've been stirred this morning about the gravity of the words that we've just read in Genesis, an Old Testament book, chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Maybe you've been gripped this morning with celebration of the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ of this earth when you realize that, that he would live and that he would die in your place so that we could have hope of complete restoration, that our love that was designed for God would fully go to God. And maybe you just want to express that this altar in praise. Maybe you want to respond this morning in thanksgiving and praise. I don't know what this message has spoken to all of you individually and personally, but I know the Holy Spirit has told you something. And you're holding something in your heart right now and this is the time when you take that something and you bring it down to the altar. While the worship team sings, I want to open up this altar and give you a time to come down here 
and reconcile whatever it is that God has laid on your heart. And believe me, he laid a lot on my heart this week that I've already been praying about. And after we pray a while at the altar, we will close this service in prayer. In fact, maybe you should stand so those who want to come to the altar have a way to get by you, if you wouldn't mind standing. We're going to spend some time in prayer while the worship team sings.
Those at the altar can continue to pray. I'm going to go ahead and close this service in prayer. I want to remind you again of our Christmas concert tonight at 5 o'clock. We'd love for you to all come. Bring your family, friends, and neighbors. It'll be a great evening. And uh, also, on behalf of our family, I want to remind you and invite you all to Brooke and Jeffrey's wedding this coming Saturday at 11. We'd love to have you here celebrating with us. It's going to be a wonderful day, and we'd love to have you be a part of it. So if you bow your heads, we will go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that you have given us. We thank you, Father, that you hardwired us to love you. Forgive us, Father, when we don't love you like we should. My prayer is that this Christmas and from here henceforth, Lord, we would be focused on our love for you. Because when we love you, we love other people. When we love you, we love our spouses. When we love you, we love our children in ways that we can on our own. It is your spirit in, that indwells us, that allows us to be superb at these things you've given us to do in this life. So I pray, Father, for every man and woman and child in this building today that our love for you would eclipse all other loves that we have. And if we find that there are things in our life that get our greatest amount of attention that is above you, that we would change that order and we would put you on the throne of our life and remove ourselves. So, Father, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us the things we do, the places we go, the conversations that we have. Let us be led by your Spirit. And Father, those conversations that we have, let them be conversations that build up, build people up and not tear them down. And Father, let us shine brightly in this very dark world, the love of Jesus, so much so that people will ask us what it is about us, and you open the door for us to share our relationship with you to them and potentially bring them into the fold and if nothing else, invite them into church. So Father, use us this week. A lot of things going on. What a busy week I know for our family, and I just pray that we would not get so burdened down with the activities, that we would lose sight of, of what this Christmas season is about, and is it about you, Jesus? We thank you for coming. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for redeeming us. We thank you that you can turn our hearts towards God, and he can get the best, the very best of who we are. That's our goal, and that's our desire. So, Father, I pray until we meet together again next week that you would keep us safe from sickness, disease, or illness. You, might, you would keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us so that we can come back together again as a church family and worship you in spirit and in truth. And I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. amen. Thank you for being here.